Oh wow, this is beautiful out here. Let's check on this chicken. Smells good. Woo, looks good. Hey, what's going on? I didn't know you were listening over there. How's it going? Welcome to Gordon Speaks. We're just a variety show that talks about various topics, man, ranging from music to horror movies to cultivation to travel to quantum physics. I have various guests and uh, all sorts of different segments that are guaranteed (laughs) to ignite your auditory and imaginative senses. If you like to laugh, if you like to smile, if you dig some variety in your life, come on over to Gordon Speaks. Check us out. We'll be here on the dock. Peace. If you start to get interested in Bigfoot, it is such a slippery slope. And that slippery slope leads to a rabbit hole that is coated in ice with grease poured down it that goes off into 50 other rabbit holes. That is trying to discover Sasquatch and Bigfoot, to learn what it's about. It just shoots off in all these different directions. So once you do start investigating all these different rabbit holes into whatever Bigfoot is supposed to be, what I think you get is almost like a scale. And on one end of the scale, they're aliens. And on the other end of the scale, they're just really big, smart apes. And in between, I think what you have, it's like a gradient. It's all these shades of what I like to consider the most important part of this is what are their attributes. So if I say to you, these are their attributes, like I'm some kind of wildlife biologist who knows about Sasquatch, yeah, it'd be nonsense. This is the claims of attributes. These are the claims that people make of experiences they have with this phenomenon that seems like, well, that that must be an attribute. Like what? Super strength and speed, this massive size. 
using infrasound, which we know we have in the natural world. A lion might use infrasound to disable a certain ungulate, make them feel nauseous. Cloaking, well, octopus cloak. So we have attributes that are quite within the scope of the natural realm. And then you have telepathy and maybe being able to control the vibration of their body they seem to half disappear and then you have alien connection and all, and all this stuff is swirling around in the middle and people are trying to pick camps to live in the most definitive camps are the it's a big ape camp they're working for the aliens camp i like the stuff in the middle because in the end what i think is really going on here is it's not Occam's razor. It's more Hickam's dictum. Maybe they're a little bit of everything. Could they be a highly evolved, highly intelligent, very secretive ape that has cloaking ability like octopus, infrasound ability like lions, can speak telepathically, can understand and communicate telepathically, and have all these different attributes all at the same time? I'm kind of like, well, you know, that does answer all of the questions. Because when you try to sit in one of those gradients solidly, there's 80% of the questions you can't answer. The ape people can't answer for a lot of things. And the alien people can't answer for a lot of things. So it's, I like being in the middle there and letting it all swirl around until we figure out what exactly it is. Firstly, what I would want to say is that where you land on what you think Sasquatch is or Bigfoot is will depend on how open your mind is. So if you're pretty dogmatic and closed-minded, you're going to pretty much stick with the ape theory. If you're wildly, fantastically open-minded, you're going with aliens, you know? I like to be skeptical, intelligent, even cynical at times to be in the right place, but to be an open-minded skeptic, I think the best place to be. But you definitely, for the most part, most people start with the ape thing. You start there because, well, wait a minute. Well, how could he live up? Oh, I guess he could live out here. Huh. Never thought about that. Yeah, there's food. They, they could eat elk and they catch salmon and they could live in caves. Well, that's all pretty violent. That makes sense to me. So you start there. But the more you go out, the more you experience, the more you talk to people, when seven people in a row tell you the same thing and it's all about telepathy, if you're open-minded, you're going, huh, never thought about that. That might explain why they never get seen on trail cams. They know. I think trail cams are a perfect example of why they can't just be smart apes. If they were just smart apes, there'd be some in a zoo. We'd have them caught. They'd be stuffed. So why can't trail cams catch them? Think of it this way. Uh, if I walked into your living room and set up the camera that you're using to film me right now on your kitchen table, would you notice it? Think of the wilderness, it's their home. Think of it that way. Every broken branch, if they're communicating through manipulating trees very subtly, just like Aboriginal cultures did for many years, they communicated with tiny little branches on the ground. Okay, think of it this way. This is their home. They know it intimately. Every branch, every rock, every tree. Maybe their senses are ridiculously attuned to this natural world, their sight, their smell, the vibrational energy. And so if I stuck a beach ball 
all blown up and put it on your kitchen table, you're gonna spot it. You're gonna go, what in the, and, and if you're already really in tune to the fact that well, this is wrong, that there's something wrong about this, you're just gonna stay away from it, you're gonna, you're gonna know it's there. Well, you put a trail cam on a tree, they're never being filmed by these trail cams. Ergo, they have to know what's going on. They don't necessarily know that it's a trail cam and humans put it there to film them. They just know it's wrong. And I'm conjecturing them. But we have to come up with some kind of answer as to why they never get seen on, on trail cams. And for me, it's got to have everything to do with stealth, intelligence, and senses that are beyond our understanding. Do you believe in Santa Claus? That's a fun question to ask when the child is seven. But do you believe in Bigfoot? It's the wrong question to ask entirely. It makes it a joke. You're talking about fairy dust now. And, and, and you're not talking about a biological being that may have or may not have plausibility. You're talking about something that has been experienced throughout history by hundreds of different cultures. And the anecdotal references are overwhelming. So do you believe in Bigfoot? That's a nonsensical question. It's, it's uh, dare I say it, disrespectful to the phenomenon to ask it that way. Now, ask me, do I think this is possible? Do I think it's plausible? What's the biological realities of something like that existing in the forest? Well, those are good questions to ask, and they will spur on the right kind of discussion. But do you believe in Bigfoot? It's a stupid question. Somebody along the line said that the universe is not only stranger than you think, it's stranger than you can think. <laughs> There's a statement I use, if you're green you grow, if you're ripe you rot, so I like to stay green until I'm not here anymore. Just keep learning, because that's what it's all about. Man, that guy's got some awesome, awesome stuff going on in his head. Completely outside of the box thinker. Uh, Les Stroud, I've always loved Les Stroud, uh, or Survivor Man. Uh, or some of you may know him as a Survivor Man Bigfoot series. Uh, that came from his podcast that he just, a uh, new podcast that he just released not that long ago called Surviving Life with Les Stroud. So I highly suggest you check it out. Um, that came out of a three-part uh, episode series on his uh, Survivor Man Bigfoot. So make sure you go check that out. Uh, welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to Bigfoot and the Citizen Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler, and I want to thank you for being here. If you've had an encounter or story you would like to share, shoot me an email at sciencemeetsbigfoot at gmail.com. Contact me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, though I don't use Twitter too much, uh, or on the new podcast, Voicemail Line. That number is 641-715-3900, extension 448-449. Be sure to leave your contact information, including your email, at the end of your message so I know who and where to contact. Uh, if your message is any longer than 15 minutes or so, um, I don't know the exact uh, cutoff line, but I'm guessing it's 15 minutes, just go ahead and email me and we can get in contact. Today I am releasing a lecture from Dr. Jeff Meldrum on the FAQs, or Frequently Asked Questions, on Sasquatch. 
I was fortunate enough to attend this lecture last year and was presented in a small room with about 50 attendees or so. So there will be a little background noise, but I hope not enough to distract the presentation. This was set up by Cliff Berrickman the day before the Washington State Squatch Fest, and the event was named A Night with Dr. Jeff Meldrum. So I hope to bring the same to you, a close, intimate lecture from the doctor himself. From time to time, I will put a bonus at the end of an episode. Sometimes it's more information, sometimes it's a song. Today is a song, and a very adult-rated song at that. I like to introduce some humor on occasion, and that's all this is. I came across this song while searching for new songs and couldn't help myself. So fair warning, the song is very raunchy, but but in my opinion, absolutely hilarious. It is not for the faint of heart though. So this is your explicit content warning. Without any further delay, let's dive into today's episode. second special event and it's not just a Dr. Meldrum like residency here it's just that you happen to be passing through town again because of the Kelso gig I don't know if you guys are aware but this weekend up in Longview Kelso at the Kelso Convention Center there's a there's an event called Squatch Fest um, Dr. Meldrum will be speaking a different thing than he's doing tonight right I'll be speaking there um, uh, the, the Olympic project is going to be there um, uh, Dave Polides was supposed to be there but he has the flu apparently so um, Dr. Robert Alley who's an expert in Sasquatches in Southeast Alaska is going to be there the mountain monster dudes are going to be there yeah. no no th- their shows a lot of fun a lot of fun you know um, is it real I don't know I'm not, I'm not liberty to say it but no <laughs> I do know the individuals though and they do like the subject um, Buck found footprints when he was 17 years old with his father Jeff Rowe thinks they're real. He thinks they're paranormal, which he's wrong, but that's what he thinks. Um, And on top of that, they're really, really great people. As Bobo says, some people like Olympic wrestling, some people like professional wrestling. (laughs) They're the professional wrestlers. Nicest guys in the world, though. So if you guys are going to be going up there, you'll be able to see all of us as well. But for now, you're here. You get access to Dr. Meldrum in a small group, and that's kind of cool. So thank you very much for coming out. Thank you for supporting the museum and all that other stuff. And with nothing else left to say, here's Dr. Meldrum. I'll just simply echo all of that so I don't have to extend all, uh, repeat all the gratitudes and platitudes before I jump right in. So tonight I wanted to uh, keep it uh, maybe a little less formal and uh, do a presentation or a conversation, maybe more so, that I just call an FAQ. I know FAQs have kind of fallen out of, uh, of the vernacular anymore, but FAQ stands for... There you go. So you, as you can imagine, I get question after question, but there's a few that are, are pretty consistently there. So what I try to do is just to put together a little little conversation that addresses some of those. So here we go. All right. So invariably, people start off with, do you believe 
in Bigfoot. Either they want to know, you know, if, the, if I have an affirmative answer or they're incredulous that someone with my background would actually take this subject matter seriously. And I, you know, I frequently <coughs> launch into, um, what did I do? <laughs> Thank you. You know, I launch into uh, a little sermonette because that's a real loaded question whether the individuals posing that understand this or not. And that is um, the word believe has certain connotations in certain circles. You know, for those of the religious or spiritually minded, belief connotes a, a position of faith, that is, the acceptance of something in the absence of evidence, typically. Now, we can split hairs, you know, different people have different definitions of what constitutes faith in a religious sense, but nevertheless, there's usually that, that suggestion, you know, a conviction in the absence of evidence. Likewise, the skeptics, the ideological skeptics and professional skeptics like the Benjamin Radfords and the Michael Shermers, they often use the term true believer as a very pejorative, very derogatory term, in fact, uh, to put people down. And so, um, no, I don't believe Sasquatch exists. In fact, there have been times when you know, a journalist has sat across the desk from me and they've asked this question and I just flat out say, no, and, and pause. <laughs> There's this pregnant silence uh, as it sinks in and they become kind of uncomfortable. And I tell them, no, I don't believe, I'm convinced, however. In fact, uh, um, what's your name? <laughs> Brandon, sorry, <laughs> I'm just teasing him. Brandon, who prints t-shirts, did a design for someone and it said, believing since 1967. And he gave me one of those. I'm, I'm one of his walking billboards, so I'm very sure it's a good relationship, good reciprocal relationship. But I immediately took a big Sharpie and I put a big line through believe and I put convinced since 1967. <laughs> yeah. So he's promised me he's going to make a, another t-shirt, an alternate t-shirt out of that. We're working on it. <laughs> so convinced, you know, use that term with your, with your friends. Try to not to fall into the trap of saying, oh, I believe. Because it really does, it really does kind of color the conversation. It colors the perception that other people have. Uh, and, uh, and you will convey uh, the, at least the impression <laughs> that you are well informed on the subject matter if you uh, suggest that you're convinced on the basis of the data. You know, it's been said, there is no history without legend and no legend without history. You know, those that point to this as being just mythology, just folklore, you know, just stories. Well, the just is unjustified in that situation. Um, we would expect that if this is a legitimate phenomenon, that it would have a presence, that it would, have, it would resonate in the traditional knowledge of indigenous populations of those areas where these species reportedly reside. <coughs> And so it boils down to the question, this is the, was the fundamental question that I tried to address in Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, is simply, is there a biological species behind the legend of Sasquatch? In fact, this morning, or this afternoon at lunch, Cliff, Cliff said something, I said, there's a t-shirt there. He said, Bigfoot is biology. That's really what it's about, right? Mm -hmm. It's a biological phenomenon. Now, 
you know, there may be some in the room that, that when, I don't know, here, I'll, I'll digress down this path for just a minute uh, by way of conversation. There may be some in this room who, who do entertain the possibility that there are paranormal aspects to this phenomenon. And, and I've always been one to say those who live in glass houses should be throwing stones. So I'm not criticizing, but I'm approaching this subject matter as a scientist, as, a, as an anthropologist and biologist. And one of the things that science does, one of the methods or processes of science uh, guiding principles is that principle of parsimony. Now, I'm, I'm one who uh, often gets on my little soapbox and, and decries the abuse of parsimony. Parsimony is also known as Occam's Razor. If you've watched that movie, Contact, you know, she goes, she launches in, before her pan, the panel, she launches into the, into the, uh, um, you know, the oration about, uh, about parsimony, that the simplest explanation is most likely true. She completely missed, or, or, or the script writers, completely misstated the principle. That's not what Occam said. He never said that the simplest explanation is most likely to be true. What he pointed out, he was a philosopher of science, and he recognized that from a philosophical point of view, from a, from a pragmatic point of view, it's impossible to test every example, every case, in order to, in, to uh, evaluate your idea, your hypothesis. And so instead of, of uh, trying to prove every case, science advances by falsification. That is, they look for that one exception. All it, all it takes is one exception to prove your hypothesis is not complete, is not universal. And that's a much more manageable task to undertake. All right, well, so what Occam said, it, it, well, basically the principle said, we should not multiply factors unnecessarily. In other words, we should start with the simplest explanation because that's the easiest one to try to falsify. And if we're gonna advance in an orderly, systematic fashion, we start there and then we add more elaborate explanations, more elaborate uh, uh, hypotheses. Okay, so from my position as a biologist, as an anthropologist, what I have experienced personally to date and what I have seen and studied um, uh, as far as in uh, the various forms of data falls readily within the rubric of a biological species. I still haven't experienced anything or seen any reason to appeal to a more elaborate explanation like portals to a different dimension or, you know, or, or UFOs or anything like that. I'm not ruling those out, but for right now, I'm obligated as a scientist to maintain this simpler hypothesis. Okay, I mean, emphasize, it's, it, it's not a principle of science that the simplest is more likely it simply means that we stick with that until such time as we can falsify it. All right, anyway, that was a bit of a digression. What's that? Perfect time. All right, so number two, how did you get involved with this subject? Well, you know, I didn't just come in, come in uh, cold as, as a, uh, you know, as a system professor of anthropology. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I, I lived in Spokane, Washington as a, as a youngster from about second grade through junior high through, through eighth grade. And when I was in fifth grade, uh, 1968, um, suddenly the, the kids at school were talking about this movie that had come to town. 
and uh, it was about Bigfoot. I had never heard of Bigfoot, but I, at that age, was already very interested in biology and evolution and dinosaurs and cavemen and all those things, and, and mysterious mysteries. I wanted to grow up and rent a plane and fly into the hollow earth, you know, <laughs> from yeah. the North Pole. <laughs> yeah. That was one of my ambitions as a young Anyway. Bigfoot, that, this seemed to embody all of my interests. I raced home, I remember, and, and opened up the paper, and sure enough, here was the advertisement. Well, um, one of the versions of that advertisement is actually on display there in the museum, uh, of this documentary that was uh, being shown by Roger Patterson that showcased that infamous, uh, notorious uh, 60 seconds of, uh, of film footage of the Bigfoot strolling across the sandbar in Northern California. So I talked my dad into taking my brother and me to the showing of that at Spokane Coliseum. We were right there on the third row as Roger Patterson came out on the stage and introduced the, the production. It was great. And then uh, watch it mesmerize, you know, walk across that gigantic silver screen there, larger than live. And afterward, he came out and fielded questions and so forth. And then when we left, they distributed uh, memberships. Uh, membership applications, excuse me, to the Northwest Research Association, organization that Roger had organized in order to generate a revenue flow to finance his search for Bigfoot. And, uh, and was able to order a copy of his book as well. Now that, that footage still remains. I mean, uh, I think the last time we talked about bears, didn't we, those of you that were here? But I've, uh, over the past couple of years, have frequently addressed the film from a 50-year retrospective. What do we know now that uh, has implications for the interpretation of that film? And I, you know, it stands. Without, we're not going to have time tonight to go into that. But uh, it's a fascinating conversation. It it, uh, it was it was amazing then, and, and hugely impressive on an impressionable young mind. Uh, obviously, but it uh, even today is even more impressive within the context of what we now know in anthropology. The fact that it actually anticipated many insights we've now gained into the evolutionary history of, of our uh, our family and uh, that of our immediate ancestors and so on and near neighbors. But that's pretty amazing to sit and contemplate. I did it again. I keep dragging my legs. <laughs> like some of my other ancestors huh? <laughs> across the screen. All right. Flash forward now, jump forward to 1996 and a few, a number of events. I'm now, a, at this point, I'm an I'm a, a assistant professor at Idaho State University, Department of Biological Sciences with a degree in physical anthropology and or a degree in anatomy with an emphasis in physical anthropology. I teach human gross anatomy in the health professions programs, teach human evolution, primate studies, and anthropology. My research specialty, my publication record, is in the evolution of human bipedalism, the, our adaptations for walking on two legs. So someone pretty in a pretty good position to offer an authoritative evaluation of evidence relating to Bigfoot. And circumstances put me square uh, in face-to-face uh, -face with some of that evidence. Um, my brother and I had uh, taken a trip kind of on a lark. I mean, some, some circumstances had led up to this, but uh, to visit Dr. Grover Krantz in Pullman. My, my extended family lived in Boise, Idaho. So we took a little road trip, a little overnighter, and went up to, um, with, with the uh, 
invitation of uh, Grover, went up to see his lab on a given weekend and visit with him. Had a great time. On our way back, we st stopped into Walla Walla, where I had uh, struck up a correspondence due to some of the other circumstances that precipitated this trip to, to Walla Walla, or to uh, Pullman. Uh, we stopped in Walla Walla and uh, visited Paul Freeman and Wes Summerlin, some of the characters some of you may know from Nods I can see. Uh, but particularly with Paul, we showed up literally cold on his doorstep on a Sunday afternoon. He was just pulling, it happened to be just pulling into the driveway in his pickup truck and greeted us and was very cordial. He and I had spoken over the phone once before, but this trip was totally unannounced. It was very spontaneous and unannounced. And uh, he was very gracious and invited uh, us in and we examined some of the footprint cast. He started pulling boxes out of the closets. We were spreading things out on the carpet and I was pointing out details and taking pictures and, and uh, asking him all kinds of questions about the, the provenience of many of these footprints. And he goes, well, you obviously know a lot about footprints. Would you like to see some fresh tracks? And I just, uh, I looked at my, my brother. <laughs> He said, uh, uh, every uh, spring, as soon as the snow melts back a little, this was in late February, uh, and, and the snows had melted back a bit off of the lower roads in the foothills of the Blue Mountains there. And uh, he said, I drive those roads and look for tracks. And he said, I found the first tracks of this season just this morning. He said, they're not really impressive, but I'll be happy to show you if you'd like to see I thought, well, what have we got to lose? I mean, they were only 20 minutes outside of town, and uh, what an opportunity. So I said, sure, let's go take a look. And so we, we drove up there, and uh, to make a long story short, here was this long line of tracks, and it was on this muddy, sort of tertiary uh, farm access road, a restricted access to just, you know, four wheelers from the property owner. But the, the soil there in southeastern Washington, much like um, much of the terrain in southern Idaho, is very high in lus. It's this powdery, talcum powdery glacial silt. And when it's wet, it's very clay. And it picks up detail remarkably. It's, it's the tracks from the Blue Mountains that Dr. Krantz had um, recognized dramatoglyphics in. And, and, and I had been very interested in that, of course. But these tracks were so fresh that as I knelt down, you could still see the dramatoglyphics, even though we were in very wet, damp weather, as you could see the standing puddles of water in, in places. They had to have been laid down, because I had done experiments already where I had laid tracks into the soil and uh, you know put a track down and then cleaned off the, the, the uh, cast that I had. It was my own footprint. Or actually, no, at first I used my own, my own feet. I, I stepped, I made a track, washed my foot, stepped again, you know, and repeated that. And then I made a, a cast immediately and waited for an hour and made a second cast and waited for an hour and made a third cast. And then I could compare and see the deterioration of the dramatoglyphics over time. Under weather conditions very similar. So it was an overcast day, drizzly, kind of drippy rain uh, off and on. A lot of, you know, a lot of moisture, a lot of humidity. Well, what I discovered was that under those kinds of conditions, um, these, and under, under soil, a very similar condition, because like I said, in our backyard, in our garden, the soil is very similar to what you see right there. Um, the dramatoglyphics deteriorate after just two or three, four hours. 
So that meant, since there were still little patches of persistent dermatoglyphics in this, these tracks had to have been laid down in the past you know, six, seven hours, maybe. Whoa. So they were uh, made either, I think, on, on the late Saturday night or wee hours of Sunday morning. This was the first weekend, remember, that you could drive up some of these roads. And I think what had happened was, it turns out, as, as we reconstructed, I think what had happened is the Sasquatch was, had come down from the Mill Creek watershed, had skirted around the fringe of some of these farm um, fields, which were flanked oftentimes by old abandoned pioneer orchards of plum and apple trees. Mm. And gleaning off the rotten fruit, the old fruit that was still lingering about from overwinter, and was on its way back up the ridge where the, the road in the opposite direction would take it right up over uh, onto Black Snake Ridge and then down into the watershed. And on the back side of the watershed, it abuts right against the Wanaha Tacana wilderness that extends for, you know, all the way to almost to Hell's Canyon. Anyway, um, the point was this was an exceptional uh, experience. I mean, really, the, the serendipity or the, the uh, the uh, uh, luck of, of the draw, I'm, I'm the kind of personality, so I don't make a great fisherman. If I don't catch a fish in the first five minutes, I, I lose interest and I have to pull up stakes and move somewhere else. But if I catch a fish in that first, that first couple of casts, I can sit there all day long and not catch another fish, but be absolutely mesmerized by the process, you know? And so, in speaking in terms of, of my Sasquatch research, this was catching a fish on the first cast. It was pretty amazing. I mean, the opportunity to examine footprints like this. Uh, here, here's some examples. Now, the one on the right, or the left, excuse me, um, it, it, it does a pretty good justice. I, obviously, I was using a flash because of the poor lighting conditions, the overcast conditions. But you can see that speed bump right across the midfoot there, the pressure ridge. That caught my attention right off the bat because, you know, I had, I had grown up reading Patterson's uh, book and then, of course, required John Green's books. And then the first book I ever got as a Christmas present was, guess what? Ivan Sanderson's The Almost Snowman Legend Come to Life. And I devoured that over and over again. I learned geography by studying all the landforms and the continents and everything that he described uh, so uh, so graphically in, in that, uh, that encyclopedic tome. Um, and so I had seen this one photograph from the Patterson-Gimlin film site taken of that track that was subsequently it was, it was filmed, uh, photographed by Lyle Laverty, a timber cruiser who visited the site immediately after Roger and, and Bob had departed, but was subsequently cast about 10 days later by Bob Titmus. And it's on exhibit, a copy of it's on exhibit there in the museum, uh, showing that remarkable pressure ridge, which no one at that time understood or had appreciated. Um, there, on the right, you can see another example that's even in many ways more dramatic you can see the heel imprint behind that's completely inundated with water. But then because of the saturation of that soil, it didn't just make a simple hump. It actually extruded, you know, in almost a semi-liquid way, extruded the mud pressed out from under the forefoot as weight was concentrated over the front half of that footprint. And this, so this really piqued my interest and curiosity. All right, the tracks were amazing. I mean, there was one where, where it was running, and as it had landed on a, on a slight slope, it started to slide. 
and as it slid, the toes curled. They flexed and dug in tightly, but they, they dug in so deeply and, and kind of expanded as they, as they uh, sought traction that the fifth and the, and the first toes actually pressed, abducted, pressed into the sidewalls of this very deep track. And so it afforded not only an imprint of the toe, but a profile of the toe. And without a lot of imagination, you know, to someone who's familiar with the anatomy, you can see the individual segments of that toe. This 15-inch track had a little toe that was longer than my pinky finger. You know, imagine that. Imagine a, a body with calf musculature the size of a Sasquatch that had digits as long as my fingers, just well padded up underneath so they don't seem quite as long, perhaps, from that view. But man, talk about prehensile capability, the ability to grasp, you know, minus the divergence of the big toe. Now, if you turn that around, the opposite view, you can see the profile of the big toe, and it clearly only has two phalanges, two bones in it. How many of you knew that your thumb, as well as your big toe, only have two digits, or not digits, excuse me, two phalanges, two bones, as opposed to the three that are in the remaining digits? Paul didn't know that. When I, when I started getting into details of anatomy, the expression on his face was like some of my students, you know. <laughs> uh, he didn't know the underlying anatomy, for sure. Here is that track, you can see as it curled in, and you can see the toes sliding and then gaining purchase. There's my interpretation of, of what was going on. It was running, there was no heel contact. The, the contact of the foot was limited to the anterior part of the foot only. Okay, and you can see the arrows indicating where it, it's not a, well, it's a pressure ridge of sorts, but it's a slightly different situation where the mud has just been pushed back and displaced as the, as the foot has slid in that mud. Now this one, this picture has drawn some interesting responses. Someone who shall remain unnamed took a look at it. Someone who should have known much better looked at it and said, oh, that's a bear trap. Look at this, well, this person also was afforded a copy of the actual cast. Had they looked at it, they would realize those aren't claw marks. Those aren't the striations of claws digging into the soil. Those are extrusion ridges between the toes. Yep. <laughs> anyway, next slide. Oh, next slide. I'm doing this slide. Now that, that previous track was an example of what I came to call half-tracks. Half-tracks are another interesting example that, that uh, reinforce the mechanical, functional interpretation of the mid-tarsal break that we'll come to in a little more detail further on. But here's a great juxtaposition of two foot break caps that I made at that site. You can see where it, at one point, ran down across the fallow field where the, the straw stubble was uh, easily embedded in the tracks. You can see, you can kind of see on the left track, the contour, uh, as it ran across this soft-tilled soil, the anterior part of the foot was really making the deepest impression. The toes really weren't curling in much. In fact, in some of those tracks, the toes are actually pushed upward like this. The push-off is coming from the forefoot, not through the toes. The toes are there for traction. It doesn't need to prevent backward slippage, then they stay extended. They don't flex down in like they did in the previous track where it was sliding in the mud. 
but when it runs, it doesn't have an arch upon which to poise over the ball of the foot, the anterior being, uh, uh, or, uh, support of the arch. Instead, the foot, with its tremendous flexibility, collapses into flexion across the transverse partial joint, the midfoot, the instep, and you get a half track. <clears throat> a half track, and notice the orientation there. So notice how it's slightly angled from the medial, the big toe side, up towards the little toe side. And if you, if we look back at that picture, you can see ever so slightly that same orientation there. There's a slight cant to that, to the axis, that pressure ridge, because there's a slight offset between those two joints that make up the transverse tarsal joint. It's actually a compound joint that's formed between the talus and the navicular and the calcaneus scoop. There'll be a couple figures, I think, that will illustrate that further when we talk more about the mid-tarsal, mid-tarsal brain. All right, here's another example, a little more regional. Um, this one comes from uh, up in uh, Grace Harbor County, Washington. This is the Hereford track. And one of the stunning things about this is as, as this um, idea about what the meaning of these half tracks and these pressure ridges started to take shape, started to correlate, uh, I gained uh, or uh, uh, learned about uh, more detail about the Hereford track. I'd seen an example of the track on the on the uh, left, the the far left. I simply masked out the extraneous plaster in order to produce a, a cleaner graphic showing the uh, inferred position of the skeletal elements. But um, um, Henry Fernbach, Dr. Henry Fernbach, uh, had actually had a visit from Dennis Hereford in his home and was able to examine the original cast. He, he called me quite excited about you know, what he had seen and he was talking about these this partial tracks. And I said, well, describe it to me. I mean, could you have any measurements? Because I was curious now because it's starting to narrow in that these things were not just arbitrary, but they were constrained or, or dictated by the proportions of the skeleton, the position of that transverse tarsal joint. And see, based on that reconstruction on the left, you can see, you notice the series of bulges. There's these two very prominent bulges um, up there and that, that correspond to the head and the base of the fifth metatarsal, that, that's the longer bone in the instep of the foot. And then right behind that is another bulge. If you ever look at one of your wet footprints on cement when you step out of a swimming pool, for example, you'll notice that you probably have a, the, at least that third bulge will be present. The other two are more pathological. It re represents probably inflammation, arthritis in those joints, either through injury or overuse or age, you know, whatever. But the other one is just simply the bulge formed as the joint capsule that surrounds that joint between the cuboid, the heel bone, and the bone immediately in front of it, the cuboid. Did I say that right? The calcaneus, the heel bone, and the cuboid immediately in front of it. Well, if the foot is indeed flexing at that joint where I've placed it based on those landmarks, then when we see half tracks, if those indeed are tracks in which the foot has flexed at that joint when the creature is running, then they should correspond. And sure enough, they do. Now there's a little divot, that little little uh, uh, piece that's missing just where the, the track was uh, attenuating there at the edge and the plaster didn't quite fill it. 
Um, but nevertheless, it corresponds, and let's see, I don't think, no, I don't have in a, in a more in-depth discussion of this, I have another, uh, uh, oh, well, no, I guess you can't see it. In, in the middle, in the middle impression, it's a little hard to see. The superimposition doesn't give you a, a real perfect uh, uh, representation, but basically that's a superimposition of the, the flanking images. And what's fascinating is where it was running and where it landed on just the forefoot, you would have less surface area, right, per unit of compression due to the uh, that step. And you would expect the sole pad to respond a little differently, to be more compressed. And when you compress that sole pad, what happens? It's It's got fat, right, fat that is high in water. It's not really compressible intrinsically, and so it has to displace, it has to spread. As, as they come down, and when you, what's interesting is you, you know, in, the, in most details, those two look almost the same, just like one's truncated. But when you put it over overlay, notice, for example, especially on the outline of the lateral edge of the foot. Look at this outline, and notice right here how the the half track actually has expanded laterally. So not only did who, if this was a hoax. Not only would they have to have gotten the proportions just right, but they would have had to also take into account the increased compression over that reduced area, such that the pad had expanded beyond the outline of the full foot imprint. Okay. Now, I can tell that's lost on some of you. Some of you are nodding, some of you are getting it, and you can see the light kind of going on. I mean, these are kinds of subtle details, remarkably consistent details. That, that aren't just, I'm not just grasping these out of the air. You know, there are example after example after example that reiterate these, or other examples that are correlated, that tie these in together in such a way that they just, they just couldn't be happening, in my mind, by happenstance. All right, but if, you, if you're, some skeptics are in here, some skeptics will confront me with the retort, but didn't somebody confess on their deathbed that they hoaxed all the Bigfoot tracks with carved wooden feet, you know? AKA Ray Wallace or Rant Mullins and so forth. Well, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at these and recognize they have nothing to do with legitimate <laughs> footprint evidence. <coughs> there I, I just uh, darkened the footprint area because they were kind of washed out in that photo. But you should be able to recognize the Wallace signature. Um, the straight ruler edged line of toes that look like Easter eggs. The exaggerated indentation, you know, an attempt, I think, to try to replicate or to uh, emulate rather a, a flexion crease that sometimes appears in footprints that have an extensive sole pad up under the toes. This is an a idiosyncratic trait, one that's, that's exemplified by some individuals and not others. If we looked at all your feet in here, some of you would have very thick sole pads and some that extend up almost to the first interphalangeal joint of your toes. Some of you, like me, have a more attenuated sole pad. I can't walk out barefoot on the driveway. I can walk through the snow barefoot, no problem. And 
go out and get the mail or the newspaper, but I've had to walk across the driveway with grit on it. I'm like the princess and the pea. I'm, I'm you know, goosey-footing all over the place. My ex-wife had, she's a very petite woman, but she had a very thick soul pad. And so when you looked at her foot from below, it looked like she had little stubby peas in the pod toes. In reality, she had actually quite long, very flexible toes, so flexible, in fact, that she could bend her toes under her foot like this. And when she was absentmindedly sitting there barefooted, sometimes you know, at a table or at the couch, she would have her toes curled under her foot. And it looked like these two fists with knuckles, you know, like, as long as it made me think of, you know, the, you know, the kangaroos that would lean back on the tail and punch with their feet, you know. And we used to tease her about that. My, my boys all inherited that ability. I can't do that. My toe won't go down that far at all. Uh, but my boys can do it as well. They do it sometimes when I have somebody. Well, one, one time I was sitting there, uh, my wife was sitting on the couch behind me, and I was down on the floor, and we were watching a movie, and she had her leg over my shoulder, and I was giving her a foot massage, you know, doing my husbandly duty, and, and uh, giving her a foot massage. And I was losing interest in the show, as a chick flick or something, and, and my mind started to wander, and all of a sudden I thought, <laughs> I had never seen the sole of her foot when her toes were flexed. And so I turned her foot over, you know, and I took her toes and I bent, it down, bent them down like this, and boom, a flexion crease popped up right across the ball of her foot. Now, if you go home and look at your birth certificate, if you have an inked footprint from birth, you'll find that you more than likely have a crease right across the ball of your foot. We're all born with one back when our feet were much more flexible. As we start to walk, and as our foot continues to develop, not just to grow, but to develop, that, that ball area under the base of the big toe fills in, and it obliterates that flexion crease, unless you have very flexible toes. One of my boys, who's able to bend his toes under like that, has hypermobile flat feet, and he still has a flexion crease. I've got a cast. Just put <laughs> one he's a little baby, actually, and one he's, when he's a, a teenager. So, anyway, it's that feature. It turns out that many of the tracks down in Northern California had this familial trait. And you can see there was a lot of discussion in some of the early Bigfoot literature about the double ball feature and attempts to interpret it. I think that's what it is. It's not really a double ball. It's simply a flexion crease that corresponds, just like in your hand, to the position of the joint that arises because the tissue extends beyond that joint. And it has to fold as the digits flex. Well, not knowing what that really was, you can see he's exaggerated in a ridiculous fashion. And it varies in, more, in, in appearance between his really big tracks and his really small tracks. There's some other examples that show how he's tried that. I mean, you can see how static, how ridiculous he's done. Oh, and by the way, those objects in the front, anyone recognize what those are? Yeah, almost. Pardon? Yeah. Pardon? Well, they, they almost, don't they? But, but they're natural features, they're natural rocks. They're geodes, basically. Yeah. They're geodes. But according to Ray Wallace, they were missiles that Sasquatch constructed in order to hunt deer. That's, that's what he would sell them as, along with his carved 
<laughs> okay, and then you know the story. This is, uh, this is uh, let's see, this is not Mike. Um, I can't remember this, this is one of the cousins, one of Wallace's clan, and here he is displaying, you can tell, you know, his expression is worth a thousand words, the, the smirk there. Um, they decided upon the death of Ray Wallace to come forward and spare poor, pathetic individuals like myself any further embarrassment by revealing the true origins of the, of the uh, legend of Bigfoot. And this was their demonstration. Well, it's a, it's a long, complicated story. You can see some of the hallmarks of the Wallace footprints, the exaggerated uh, flexion crease, the very unnatural looking flexion crease, but, and the very, you know, the sharp edge of the toes, but something is different here. I mean, these look different than the stereotypical tracks that I've shown you so far. Well, it turns out there was a track, there was a cast that was uh, uh, available back then, one that Al Hodgson had sold in his in his uh, hardware store was cast in 1963. Now, correct me if, I'm, if I get these dates, okay? Um, and it, some had pointed to it as being uh, uh, created by these cardwood feet. Well, they don't match up perfectly, but it's almost certain that, uh, that these artifacts were inspired by a true footprint, but one that was just interpreted. Uh, they were not responsible for all of the footprints. They were not responsible for the tracks of Bluff Creek exclusively. I mean, here is the photo, the news photo that appeared in the paper back in 1958. And uh, uh, you can see that uh, this was, was, was captured by one of the reporters who went up to the scene to investigate. And you can see it doesn't match those cardboard feet at all. And in fact, the footprint, you can see it and realize this is a, this is a cleaned up version of that newsprint. So it had a very screen, very speckled looking appearance, but the details are still there. But you can see about midway up on the inside of the foot, there's a, a stick of, uh, that's uh, jutting out. The foot stepped on that, and it clearly, there are also photos of the actual print in the ground that were in the paper. The foot stepped on that and clearly accommodated by way of a soft sole pad. If that hard, static, wooden foot was responsible, what would happen? It would teeter-totter because the, 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 print, the stick protruded above the ground, above the contact surface otherwise. And so without pushing it down flush with the remainder of the imprint, it would have teetered around that and left a very distinctive um, signature. But it's not there. Plus the display of the toes is very different, much more naturalistic looking on the right hand side. And uh, oh, I did it again. <coughs> Okay, so there's the carved wooden foot, one of the two that were, that were uh, provided uh, for uh, the reporters. And there's the famous uh, Jerry Crew track uh, cast in 1958. And you can see, I mean, there's no comparison. There's just not, I mean, it's uh, for them to suggest that, that those carved wooden feet had been used. It was just a, it was such a silly story. When, when you watch one of the news items and uh, the reporter would be standing there with the carved feet strapped to his feet 
and uh, the one was just uh, was just precious. He, he's standing here out in the mud to demonstrate how they could be worn and used. And he stood there just long enough that the tracks kind of settled down into the mud. And then when he went to walk to demonstrate how they would could make a line of tracks, he couldn't get his feet loose on camera. <laughs> he finally pulls the one up and, and just about falls down. But as he lifts his foot up, it pulls like three inches of mud adhering to the bottom of the, of the flat wooden plank and leaves this, you know, uh, featureless crater in the ground. It was really laughable. I mean, it was just as bad as the other explanation that someone wore the feet and held onto the tailgate of a pickup truck, which drew drove slowly along with them running along behind, which they also apparently tried to replicate. And of course, the, it was like wearing snowshoes, trying to run behind them and catch a toe and down he went into the barrel pit. <laughs> but of course, all right. So what is the best evidence? Well, obviously I'm spending a lot of time talking about footprints and that's my expertise. That's what drew me in. That's where my attention has been focused. Tom? I was read to believe that there was a triple foot that was around uh, below Mount uh, Shasta. Mm -hmm. And then later time it was the same thing that was found up in the uh, Mount St. Helens area and they almost matched. Is that true? I'm not aware of that, of those examples. I mean, the, 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 it was damaged on the side yeah. from having slapped into the, you know, who knows? Right. right. Well, there was a, an example of a set of crippled feet the Bosberg Cripplefoot tracks that were Bosberg being just north of Spokane, well, quite north of Spokane, nearly to the Canadian border. Yeah. And, uh, and there were always questions about whether it had ever been seen previously. Grover did report, Dr. Krantz did report that uh, a witness told him that he had seen similar tracks some years earlier. Um, but there's no documented example of that having been replicated. Yeah. Well, again, given my background, I, I mean, yeah, it's oh, strange to me. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, to, to someone who's not familiar. See, the reason about who was familiar and recognizable to me is that I have, because I've worked with um, uh, non-human primates, I've, I've worked with chimpanzees, and so I've, I've, uh, I'm versed in the literature, and there was a researcher by the name of Hicks who had described the um, uh, actions of the foot of a chimpanzee, and he noted this remarkable flexibility so that as they walked on the ground, whether quadrupedally or bipedally, their heel came up first, and the foot flexed across the instep. That, that and almost, he referred to that as the mid-tarsal break. That almost lends itself to the mid-parallel evolution theory that people have. Well, parallel or just a retention of a primitive trait. In other words, they never, they never, uh, the Sasquatch never evolved an arch because their, their large size uh, dictated that they had to maintain a flat foot to distribute weight uh, uh, over a larger surface area. The reason I thought that was because the other primates have it. Right, right. So when you see when you see a trait that is more universally held by a variety of other members of a taxonomic group, then it's probably what we call a primitive trait. In other words, it's it's like hair in mammals. 
You know, I, I can't use hair as a trait to uniquely group dogs and cats together because all mammals have hair. So for mammals, hair is primitive. So for primates, a flexible midfoot is the primitive condition. Some primates have evolved away from that, uh, and humans in particular. Uh, some primates have taken other strategies like walking up on the on the balls of the feet like some monkeys do in a, in a digitigrade fashion almost. Okay, let's... Uh, all right, so the footprints. Like I said, uh, I was, we were talking to a couple of you during the, the hour previously. The, the, the assemblage of uh, examples of footprints is in excess of 300. And, and that's because uh, finding Bigfoot put uh, Cliff in a very uh, fortuitous situation where he became the lightning rod. And, and their uh, town hall meetings were opportunities for people to bring footprint evidence to the fore. And uh, so he's been very gracious in exchanging and, and uh, contributing to, um, to the collection that I curate in my laboratory. And, and I try to reciprocate as, as often as I can uh, in that regard. So it's, it's a remarkable data set. Uh, one of the efforts that I try to, to, to resuscitate, it's gone into dormancy a couple of times because of competing obligations and interests, but the Virtual Footprint Archive is an effort to digitize, to virtualize this data set so that it's more accessible, not only to enthusiasts and investigators like yourselves, but to other researchers who So we've, uh, I, with the assistance of the Idaho Virtualization Laboratory, we've scanned about 185 specimens so far, and including uh, quite a variety of comparative specimens as well. And these are just some examples of some of the still images, but eventually, and I all the history of it, where the goal is to get a, a web page, a functional web page, that has the capability for you to not only look at the, uh, uh, the data set of the art that comprises the archive, but to download a file that allows you to visualize that track and rotate it in three-dimensional space, change the lighting, take measurements, take areas, and so forth. Would, you, would you be able to 3D print that also? Well, exactly. With those files, if you had a 3D printer, you could then produce. So, say the Smithsonian suddenly decided they wanted to examine and display some of this evidence. They could take these files and create their own prototypes. You yeah. fax it to them. Well, faxing would be a little bit cumbersome. Computer, <laughs> send it by you. Uh, so one of the things we did, uh, when Bob Titmus passed away, uh, his very interesting and historically significant collection of footprints was bequeathed to the Willow Creek China Flats Museum. And so I was able to take a technician down there to the museum and with a little portable scanner, and, and these things have been are, are much more advanced now, um, but you can see the process there. You can even see the little red line as it's going across that, that track, and we produce 3D scans of those footprints. And they included <coughs> the original material from the Patterson-Gimlin film site, including this remarkable example showing that very distinctive pressure ridge that has played such a central role in, uh, in the understanding of the mechanics of the Sasquatch foot, its, its means of walking. So what is that mid-tarsal break? You know, we're not talking about a damaged foot 
an injury. By break, we mean an axis of flexion, the bending of the foot. Whereas our joints have been reconfigured in such a way through the instep that the foot twists into a very stable, very limited um, uh, position of mobility, their foot, as, as is the case in so many other primates, retains a much greater degree of flexibility. And so this track, you can see I, I've attempted to reconstruct what's happening to interpret the relationship of that foot uh, or of, the, of a foot, a Sasquatch foot, to that footprint. The red arrow there indicates the position of the pressure ridge that results from the displacement of some of that sand from the sandbar backwards behind that transverse tarsal joint. So you can see as, as the step progresses, the heel elevates while the weight is transferred through the entire forefoot. In contrast, the human arch dictates that as the heel is elevated, the entire foot up to the ball is elevated. The arch comes away from the soil substrate <clears throat> and pressure is, is uh, poised over the ball of the foot, especially that portion of the ball just beneath the great toe. Now, I'm very confident in this interpretation and this model. Why? Because you can witness it. You can watch it right there on the film. We don't have to rely on just inferences from the tracks. We can witness the kinematics of the... When you... Have you ever looked at the Bushmen, people in Africa, which for centuries or millennia have always gone barefoot? Are they more left or right to your uh, drawn of your picture up there? Oh, they're oh, they're definitely to the right. So even yeah. though they evolved being barefoot out in yeah. mud like that, so yeah, there was back back in the in the at the ten, turn of the previous century, the early 1900s, physical anthropologists uh, turned their attention to such people who were habitually unshod. And they thought, they thought that they would find that the European foot, um, protected by Western boots and shoe wear, would be much better examples of the prime of a healthy foot, and that these poor, wretched uh, indigenous populations would suffer from fallen arches and, and all sorts of maladies in the foot. What they found was exactly the opposite. Yeah. That, that the barefoot was healthier, had greater ranges of mobility, but, you know, as far as splaying, but had extremely healthy arches, high arches, and, uh, and were, you know, very adapted to walking and running barefoot. So, so yeah, it, uh, that's the, the main difference you find in, in, in uh, uh, habitually unshot populations is that there is just a, a greater range of uh, abduction and adduction of the digits, of splaying. The splaying of the metatarsals is restricted by, by a deep ligament that goes across the heads of the, of the metatarsals. But even in those individuals, there's a greater range of motion than in in a human foot that has been confined its entire life by shoe wear. So, um, but yeah, that's a good, a good question. Dr. Milgram, yeah. if I may, could, could we go back to that for just a second? Yeah. So did Tibbis, uh this is one of my favorite casts, and I always like to bring this to my presentations, because yeah. it just tells so much, and I've learned so much from you, uh, as well as uh, uh, Dr. Krantz. Um, did he realize what he had here, do you no. think? Yeah. No, and I don't have a picture of the, let me see, make sure. I don't think I have a picture who, who, of the... Who finally dissected that down? That's kind of what I figured out. Yeah. So I want to make sure that I always give you proper credit on yeah. that. But it's, it's still one of the... 
uh, uh, the late Bill Jurgenis made us some out of a, a heart epoxy because we're always breaking our our, oh. our, our uh, <laughs> plaster ones. Right. And it's my favorite one to show people because of exactly what you just talked about. Right. Yeah. Now, I was going to show you uh, Lyle Laverty, who was a timber cruiser, was in was working in that area, marking out timber for salvage, and uh, and especially some of the down trees that the Bluff Creek had been scoured the year previously by a tremendous flood. His crew was in town in Willow Creek, uh, taking the weekend off. Heard the buzz about Roger and Bob's um, filming, and uh, when they went back to the field, they go, "Well, we weren't camped very far from there," and so they went to the site. They recognized the description, went to the site, and examined the footprints on the ground and snapped pictures of of a half dozen or so. Mm. And uh, I've had a chance to visit with uh, Lyle over the phone, and he remembered very vividly that experience. And you know, my question, my biggest question for him was, did you see any sign that would suggest anything was taking place other than what was described by Bob and Roger? And he said, no. He said there was a single line of these giant tracks, deeply impressed, distinctly impressed in the sand. He said there was horse hoof tracks all over the place and cowboy boot tracks, you know, basically. Um, he said they were going all over the place looking at the footprints. He said there was evidence of the, of the see where they had made casts and so forth. But he said, uh, no, there, it was, you know, there was nothing to say. What I was trying to get at was there, was there a rehearsal? Was there more than one take, you know? And, and no, there, he said it was, it was clearly a spontaneous uh, a set of circumstances. Yes, Has there been the effort to use any of the epoxy resins or <coughs> some of the more the newer synthetic products for making casts other than plaster? Not in the field, just because they, they take a long time to set up. The epoxy takes a long time to set up. Um, as my, for some my of the experience, ones that I use go, go they don't. For 20 minutes. Oh, really? Okay, well, I'm mistaken. Uh, even that size. Using epoxy on that that size of volume, it's it pretty doesn't warm. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say that the exothermic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So the bake, bake, bake it. <laughs> bake it. No, uh, no, uh, no one really has. Just plaster is easier to, to deal with. Now the only it's also cheaper. Yeah, it's also cheaper. There are other there are other uh, forms, and if you look in my field guide, I, I describe, for example, a method using uh, insulation foam. Uh, aerosol insulation foam is a lightweight means of uh, of, of recording footprints. Under some circumstances, that's desirable when you have to schlep plaster and water, heavy casts. But um, but no, this is and I, I appreciate the point too because it's interesting how things take a life on their own. You know, uh, 20 years ago, uh, to imagine a group like this talking about a mid-tarsal break would be pretty <laughs> obscure and esoteric. And now it's become such common knowledge. I mean, to the point where the origin of that whole discussion is lost on some people. And so, you know, it, it, I, I, it's, it's part of the deal. Pardon? It's part of the deal. Well, it's part of the deal. But I mean, my, my point is the fact that <clears throat> there are people out there now who use, who banty that term around <clears throat> and don't know where it came from. Don't know who was the first to draw I attention. Don't know where it came from. I, I just told you it comes from me. No. <laughs> I was the first one. So, so when, so there's this photo that I, I go back to what I was talking about. When Lyle Laverty snapped these photos, one of the tracks he snapped a picture of was the track that that cast was made from, 
and sticking off to the side was a little twig with some, some branches, a little white twig. Well, in talking with Bob at the time, um, John, uh, and, and, I, and I had brought up my interest in this feature because of my exposure to the tracks in, um, outside of Walla Walla at Five Points. And, uh, and I'd been discussing it with John. John relayed this to Bob to ask his opinion of, of uh, because the, the, the uh, uh, hypothesis that was bandied around for those who had even drawn attention to that feature was that, that the creature had stepped on a green bough that was just underneath the sand, had pressed it down, but when weight had been relieved, it rebounded and created that pressure ridge, thinking that bow was somehow connected to the branch. But you find a lot of imprints, like the first one on the left up there. Oh, right. Well, that was one. Of, that was what. That was what led to. That was what led to a search that uh, for more and more examples, and, and they have accumulated. And there are numerous examples that show the mid-tarsal pressure ridge. So, um, in any case. Um, uh, John had asked uh, Bob's opinion of this, and he said, oh, no, it's not, there's not a stick under there. He just attributed it to, to some artifact of the way in which he walked, but he had no idea about the underlying anatomy or the correlation to uh, non-human primate uh, morphology and function. So anyway, that's a... Uh, now, now, why would a creature have a foot that behaves like that? Well, it's a legacy of the grass-climbing adaptation of the non-human great apes, which have a foot that has a dual purpose. It's both prehensile, grasping, as well as propulsive through the heel. So it has to maintain the grip while moving the center of mass upward by flexing, by, by elevating, rather, that heel and flexing. And to do that, it flexes through the midfoot. You know, if you've ever seen a if you've ever seen a, a Hawaiian trying to climb a, a palm tree, you know, without a grasping foot, it's a it's quite a, a feat. It's a different one, especially without a, without the grasping foot and with a stiff arch, mm -hmm. you know. Or if you've ever walked up a steep hill slope, not switchbacking, but trying to go straight up it, or the way a mountaineer goes up a glacier with crampons, you know, just sticking in like this. Well, this creature has the advantage of being able to grip with those long, extra long toes and then flex um, uh, at the heel. So it's a retention of that trait in lieu of subsequent evolution of an arch. That really wasn't, remember the latter, wasn't really an option because of the large body size. An arch was not practical. As we see with humans who attain gigantic size and they always have problems with their feet. Mm -hmm. Terrible problems with their feet. Their arches can't support that. All right, so let's go on. Oops, those are just a bunch of more arrows. Well, that's, that's an interesting one. One of the consequences of this arrangement, and here's how some of the anatomy all starts to correlate and make much more sense. That is, if, see, the, the human foot, because it incorporates the entire arch into the lever of the foot, it then can, it has the option of shortening the heel so that it produces a speed lever. There are speed levers and power levers. Animals that say, you know, are, are strong diggers, they'll have a big long heel to increase the leverage uh, of the muscles through that uh, ankle joint. 
Um, whereas in humans, or, or let's say animals that aren't, have, don't have to produce a lot of force, but need to produce a lot of speed, those that are running, like a dog or a deer, they'll have a more lengthened distal segment of the limb and a shortened input lever arm, the, the heel bone sticking out. And humans are doing that. We, I mean, we're, we're running machines. So uh, we're not digging holes with our feet, but we're running on our feet. And so by shortening the heel, a little bit of translation of the heel means a lot of translation down at the ball of the foot, okay? Well, with Sasquatch, it doesn't have that increased output lever by way of the stiffening of an arch. And so the only way to increase leverage to manage that increased body mass is to increase the length of the heel. And what that does then is creates this thick ankle look because now the distance between the shin bone and the Achilles or calcaneal tendon is greatly increased. Now that does a couple of things. This, this led to a lot of confusion. If you've read Dr. Krantz's work, you know, he, he unfortunately described it in such a way that he suggested that the ankle had shifted forward. That sounds really awkward and it's very hard to imagine what that meant. And you know, people like Dr. David Daglin, a very skeptical person now, uh, said, well, you can't move the ankle joint. Well, he's, you know, he's right, but, but what Grover really meant was the, the relative position of the ankle relative to the, the length of the foot was different because the heel was elongated. You know, that, so whether you say the heel is elongated or the ankle is moved forward, the same effect. All right, and the, and the other consequence, another interesting consequence is, is during the film, you can see when the foot is elevated into the swing phase and tension's taken off the Achilles tendon, what happens? It becomes a little more slack. And suddenly this bulbous looking heel juts back beyond the Achilles tendon. Aha, say the skeptics, you can see the false foot that projects back behind the heel of the actor. Well, and then, and this is another, if you read Dr. Daigling's book, Bigfoot Exposed, he goes into great you know, diatribe about this, and, and it's unfortunate because all you do is look at some other frames where the foot's on the ground and the Achilles tendon is taut as the, as the triceps, you know, the, the calf muscles are contracting, and it's just perfectly straight line from the, from the, the proximal end of the heel up into the uh, remainder of the foot, or uh, up into the calf. So the <clears throat> difference in the structure of the Sasquatch foot on the <clears throat> diagram versus the right, would that correlate to a possibility of like the knee being lower as compared comparable to a human beings? The knee being lower? Yes. Well, it, yeah, it is possible. We, we have so little data. I mean, all we can do really is, is measure Patty. Right, right. Because right. Uh, uh, she, she becomes then the, the, the standard against which we measure everything. Um, we have no, no sample really to rely upon. But if, if you do that, clearly her intermembral index, the relative length of her upper limb to her lower limb is much higher. It's outside of the range of variation observed for humans, which suggests that for her size, her legs, her lower extremities that is, are shorter. Um, and, and for her size, her upper limb is much longer. So, um, so yeah. It probably does, you know, and I, you know, I tried not to, I mean, don't, don't place too much stock on, <laughs> this was kind of based roughly on a view of, of Patty, but, but uh, it's, right. it's mostly to illustrate the, uh, the um, 
basic configuration of the foot skeleton compared between the two. Another interesting thing, see when you consider this in terms of the Skookum body imprint, what we thought was or think is the uh, imprint of the back of the heel and the Achilles tendon, it shows this remarkably deep hollow behind that tendon, between the tendon and the shin bone. There's nothing in there except a neurovascular bundle, the, uh, the uh, posterior tibial artery and the uh, tibial nerve and veins. Uh, that's about it. All the other tendons are uptight against the shin bone. And uh, so it, otherwise it's just a void with fat and fascia, adipose tissue and so forth. All right, so the Sasquatch foot is, is really remarkably elegantly adapted to the habitat it lives in. And, and, and it's presumed, you know, evolutionary position. Um, if you take a chimpanzee, a lowland gorilla, a mountain gorilla, which have increased body size amongst terrestrial ground living apes, you see that the Sasquatch track is just, or, or foot, is just a few notches down that same trajectory. What are the trends we see? We see elongation and broadening of the heel, correlated with increased body mass. We see a reduction in the degree of divergence of the big toe, and we see a reduction in length of the lateral digits. And that same trend is just carried on into the Sasquatch foot. The human foot doesn't fit right in that uh, uh, array. It's a separate branch. It's a divergent. Yes, we've shortened the lateral toes. Yes, we have, have decreased the uh, uh, divergence of the big toe, but we've shortened the heel. Okay, we've shortened the heel and we've incorporated the forefoot into a longitudinal arch. Very different, completely different strategy, taking us off in a different direction. So anyway, if you, I, I, I felt confident enough. Time, yeah. I can't read it. Does that say nine or eight thirty? Okay, I'm going past my hour, aren't I? Um, the, the name of the we, we named the tracks. I named the tracks. Uh, Grover has suggested that based on the remarkably compelling argument of the footprints, that should be basis enough to recognize a new species. Well, unfortunately, it's not in the absence of a type specimen. But what he should have done, and what I got the nod to do, uh, based on reviews by a number of experts in the field of the study of, of fossilized tracks and traces, is name the footprints. By putting a handle on the footprint see, then we, we can establish a description. Something is leaving tracks that are consistently illustrating these characteristics that differentiate it from all other species. And so there we go, it's Anthropoidopes ameriborealis. So Anthropoid, man-like, pes, foot, amera, America, and borealis northern, so North American ape foot. Hmm. Right, and that was 2007. And the, the types were the right and left cast by Roger Patterson, the referred material, uh, to go with that were the 10 tracks cast by Bob Titmus, and I didn't, I, I wish I had, I didn't include it in here, but those, those 3D scans, if you take those 3D scans, one of the criticisms people have leveled is, well, well why then in, amongst those 10, you've only got one track that shows a mid-tarsal pressure ridge? Well, if you take those 10 and you rotate them 90 degrees, 
boom, you see pressure ridges in almost every one to varying degree. They're there, and they're exactly the same position uh, measured from the, from the toes back. Not from the toes back, not from the heel, because again, given that flexibility, sometimes the heel, they don't walk with the heel strike. They come down relatively flat-footed, so sometimes the heel doesn't impress as far as in other times until you get sometimes considerable variation in the length of the foot. These are all um, are all essentially depicted at, at, at relatively the same length, but that's just an artificial, that's what the technician did unfortunately, instead of putting it at the proper absolute length. But that's in a different, different presentation, I didn't correct that. So there you've got, there's the Sasquatch track. You can see a good example from that referred group, the referred holotype, that contrasts it with the condition of the non-human apes, extant, known, and the human foot. You can see that flat foot, the lack of that longitudinal arch. Notice the more subequal size of the toes. You know that humans have a very distinctive appearance. Uh, the difference between that second toe pad and the first toe pad is remarkably distinct by comparison to most every Sasquatch track. All right, isn't that notorious film just a man in a fursuit? Well, I'm not gonna spend too much time. There you go. You tell me if it's a man in a fursuit. Whatever. <laughs> Here's the man in the fursuit. That's the woman. Uh, right, the woman in the fursuit. And that was one of the interesting things is, uh, of course, he didn't have in stock a female gorilla with breasts. So it, that was part of the re-engineering of one of his off-the-shelf his being uh, uh, Philip Morris, the costume maker. That's one of his costumes on the right. <laughs> Let alone a costume that would fit the dimensions of the observed size mm -hmm. of the track maker on the film, at the film site. So there, after some eight, nine months, they, but they were able to reverse engineer Bob Hieronymus, who claimed to be the man in the fursuit. And, you know, even my, my uh, grade school aged children looked at that and laughed and said, that doesn't look like the Sasquatch. <laughs> they recognize you in there. It looks like a Harry Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And then the proportions, etc. Um, this was a really interesting experience, though. Uh, just to give you a little insight, we did a documentary, and they um, they uh, commissioned a laboratory at Stanford, uh, a gait analysis laboratory, to do an interesting study. They wanted to see if if they could get an actor, coach an actor, to replicate the joint angles evident in the film subject. They were ignoring everything else, the absolute dimensions and the proportions, etc. But could they get just the, the posture right? Well, they also hired an actor to wear this rather expensive costume, which was rented from some outfit in Hollywood. It's made some appearances on a few commercials. And uh, it had an under armature of spandex with sculpted foam rubber muscles and so forth. But the feet were just ridiculously Contrived. They were just a pair of, of loafers, oversized loafers that they had glued these artificial fur and artificial toes to, which tended to then point up into the sky like a bozo clown feet. But we we put took him through his uh, his um, uh, 
uh, marching orders there, uh, both with costume, without costume, to help him train. This is Jessica Rose, who was the director of the facility. She's a, a, a professor at Stanford, a clinical professor, as well as Dr. Uh, Dennis Gamble, who was also a, an orthopedic surgeon. And um, they, uh, they took part in this study. They, they literally wrote the book on human walking. that I wanted to bring you to, they, they were able to successfully train this guy. We, we were, I, I helped as well. And uh, one of the things that he, that he commented upon too, the hardest thing was to get him to relax his arm so that it was the natural pendulum swing of the arm that you, you witnessed. You know, think about it. Have you ever imitated a, an ape? Pretend like you were an ape or a caveman? What do you do? You get in the linebacker stance. It's just the natural reflex. And so he would, he would flex, but he would stiffen his arms and stiffen his shoulders. And it took him a good 45 minutes until we could get his arms to swing under their own inertia in a way that was similar to what you saw Patty doing, very naturally, very spontaneously. He also commented, because it was obvious that Patty leaned forward about five degrees. She doesn't have a real pronounced lordosis of her back lower spine that's very characteristic of a human column she leans forward about five degrees and he said after you know a half hour that his back was killing her wasn't used to that you look at her back and there are these massive erector spining columns on either side of the spine down the back you know leaving this very pronounced furrow we had you know as in the museum you saw that uh, that clip that gif in black and white of the stabilized film we had that projecting on a wall about life size and at the same time that we were in a, in, as, in a space that was about the size of this, but with a taller ceiling, obviously, and, and, and the actor was going through his paces. And I was standing off to the side with Jessica, and she sat there and she was watching him. We've been doing this for quite some time already. She's watching the actor, and she looks over at the wall, watches this pan through a couple of times. She looks back at the actor, and then under, almost under her breath, but loud enough she wanted me to hear, she said, that's obviously a man in a fur suit. You know, the actor decked out in his get up with his reflective balls and everything on the tape. But she turns and looks at the wall and she shakes her face. She that's not a man in a fur suit. And I go, I agree. Did say that on camera? She said, oh, wow. <laughs> she, was, she had already gotten all kinds of flack from her colleagues just for agreeing to do the interview, to do the exercise. Yeah, and so she would not. She would not go beyond her singular charge. Could they train a human actor to approximate the posture? Uh, you know, ignoring everything else. All right. Well, let's jump ahead here. Uh, some of these are kind of silly, really, for this group. Um, is it a solitary monster? No, it's not. It's not. There's not just one. I still had people ask me that. A woman asked me, you know, when I meet Bigfoot, what should I ask him? She thought there was just one. She goes, and does he ever visit Texas? <laughs> so, um, so what is it? You know, what what is Sasquatch? I've, I've entertained two, and I and I get flagged for this. People, it's just like politics. You know, you're either 
flesh and blood or, uh, or your, or, or, well, I guess it's not, that's a whole other one. You're, it's either ape or it's human, right? Republican or Democrat. Mm-hmm. No, it's either way, the other way around. <laughs> Democrat or Republican. <laughs> uh, Why can't it be its own thing? Uh, well, it, it's got a, its own animal. Well, sure. Well, okay. As long as it's an animal, then it has to fit in the taxonomy somewhere. It has to have a near a nearest neighbor. Why? Because that's how animals get here. I mean, unless you want to invoke special creation. I don't know. I'm just saying. You know, maybe it's not tough. It seems like there's a lot of different animals. Well, there are. But, but we've we've worked out the classification of those animals using either morphology or DNA. So, so, so the hypothesis to you know two hypotheses that are, are worthy of entertainment. One is Gigantopithecus. There you have something that's the right size and the right place at the right time, right? Okay. Um, but we don't really know a whole lot about it. Obviously, I mean, we now recently they were successful in getting some DNA from it, and they now ascertain that its nearest neighbor is the Asian ape, the orangutan. I didn't say exactly how closely were they. I mean, if you look at, at the description of it, the divergence between those two lineages was way back. But nevertheless, it was part of a radiation of apes in Asia versus those that were in Europe and Africa. All right? But we don't know if it was bipedal. Grover has made some arguments about the shape of the jaw. <coughs> Unfortunately, those get a little bit conflated with whether it had a flat face or a projecting face. Um, I can say that an animal that weighs 800 to 1,000 pounds is not likely to walk on all fours like a monkey because apes have evolved remarkably flexible wrists and elbows and shoulders with a configuration of the chest that puts the shoulder joints, or excuse me, the shoulder blades on the back at a decided angle to the humerus. Animals that walk on all fours line those bones up so that they, they tolerate compression very well, especially the joints. That's the critical weak point. If you turn those at an angle, there's a tendency for shear, for those joints to slide past one another. They don't like that at all. Okay? So even gorillas and chimps that are quadrupedal, they retract their weight, so more than half their weight is on their back legs and to spare their shoulders the compressive forces, especially in things like uh, like gorillas. So they have a tendency to be more upright already. Well, if you get even bigger, all of those constraints are going to be amplified. So I think it's better, much better than a 50-50 chance that Gigantopithecus evolved by humanism separately, independently from the hominids. Maybe for different mechanical reasons, but nevertheless. But that's, that's yet to be determined. Someone walks out of a cave in Vietnam with a with a gigantic femur that ends up looking like a, a biped that has a valgus angle, you know, that comes in towards the center. The other possibility that's intriguing is Paranthropus, a robust Australopithecine, which you can see in the upper left. When compared with Patty, shows remarkable similarity. Those distinctive traits of this highly specialized Cuisinart this chewing machine with deep, deep jaws and flaring uh, cheekbones for the attachment of the masseter muscles and so forth are perfectly exemplified and anticipated by at least a decade. When Patty was filmed, that skull had not been analyzed yet. It had been discovered, but no one had written it up, no one had talked about it. No way that Roger Patterson or any other person potentially capable of coming close to it hoping something like that could have incorporated that kind of information. 
I mean, again, what are the odds? Um, you know, the inspiration for a giant hairy ape in 1967 would have been King Kong, which was based on a giant gorilla, basically, with a whole different facial facial structure. All right. So there you can see it. I look at the this kind of an interesting little clip as the head turns. You can see that remarkably flat face. I mean, there's a little bit of lower facial prognathism, a little bit, but when you get that true profile, that's a remarkably flat face, very different than the adaptation of the All right, so there's two possibilities. There's probably other possibilities. I mean, back again in the 60s, uh, human evolution was seen as more of a unilinear, kind of a single file march of progression from one to the next. But now we know it's a remarkably bushy tree. If you keep up with this, you notice that almost every year, every couple of years, a new species is added to that bush. And oftentimes, dates for the persistence of the branches uh, are placed even closer to the present than ever before recognized. That's what I was suggesting. But they're all, but they're all related. All those branches hook together. There's not a, there's not a branch that's just floating on space. That, that's my. No, I wasn't. I wasn't suggesting that. Yeah. All right. Uh, where are the bones? I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump through this unless something really grabs your attention, because I want to have a chance to uh, visit with you. So, where can you get reliable information? Well, <laughs> interesting man might tell you where. That's an early version of my field which uh, now you can get from Paradise K or Amazon.com. Obviously, my book's a good place to start. But also, if you want some uh, contemporary, up-to-date reports about interesting things, as well as historical items, the Relic Commerce Inquiry is a, a peer-reviewed referee journal that I edit. Um, we're in our seventh year. This is our eighth year now, eighth year. And uh, we've got research articles, we've got uh, book reviews, we've got essays, we have editorials, we have news items, obituaries, uh, translations of foreign publications. Uh, it's a great place to, to go uh, find some interesting things. So take a look at that, it's open access. All right, thank you very much. And that's all I have for you today. I hope you gleaned as much information from this lecture as I did and hope that it maybe answered some questions you may have had. I know that it did for me. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in today. And if you enjoyed today's episode, hit that share button and spread the word. The broader the range the show reaches, the more it helps the show ratings, which in turn helps create better content. So share away. Shout it out your car window. Share the show with your local COVID test team. I don't care how you share it, just share away. So since you just hit that share, subscribe, and download button, I'll leave you with this. Love yourself, love others, be kind, be safe, and until next time.
conversation A story with no start, no end I try to keep away, remain a long time distance But always get me in the end Irrational thoughts Why are you coming back to my door When there's no All right, citizen scientists, this is your very last warning. If the F word offends you in any way, shape, or form, or if you have little ones that you do not want listening to adult-themed music, I highly suggest you turn this off, or you have the little ears leave the room. Otherwise, enjoy. Gather around the campfire, you little bastards. Grandpa wants to sing you a song. Since your loser parents stuck you with me for the weekend, we might as well make the best of it. Here's a touching tale of love about my time as a young man in the Pacific Northwest. Washington State, to be exact. I fucked a Sasquatch that night. I fucked a Sasquatch that night. Up on the mountain up high, where the trees meet the sky, 
I fuck the Sasquatch. I fuck that furry Bigfoot's ass. While all of Mother Nature watched. Sing along, you little bastards. I fuck the Sasquatch that night. Sweaty Yeti pussy is warm, my sweet and tight. I fuck the Sasquatch while voyeuristic elf jacked off and watched. Alright, I fuck the Sasquatch that night. That Bigfoot bitch, she sat upon my face. She had such a sweet, succulent, gamey taste. And oh, my cock was hard and so rock steady. Squash that night. Wonder what the Loch Ness monster would be like. I fucked the Sasquatch that night. Sweet backwoods delight. Come on, you little bastard, sing along now. I fucked the Sasquatch that night. Bestiality's wrong, but it feels so right. Motherfucking Mother Nature gave me bestial backwards delight. I fucked the Sasquatch that night. Oh, I fucked the Sasquatch that night. Whoa, I fucked the Sasquatch that night. Ass grandpa ever had, you worthless little panty waist. Now get me another beer. The song's over. Yay! Coming to you from the paranormal warehouse, Destination Mystery paints the story for paranormal content, abnormal adventures, and the fun behind the investigations. Each week, Mike and Melissa will bring a new adventure that includes going to some of the most remote places in the West. They will tell the story behind the investigation and share with you the evidence they discover. This is not your regular paranormal show. These episodes will bring new content from locations that no one would think to investigate or explore. We will not only tell the spooky story, we will go to the location where the spooky story originated. Fasten your seatbelts as we take you on an adventure that will make you question what's normal and what's paranormal.